Good morning. Uh, it's an honor to share with you guys this morning. I'm um, happy to be here with you guys. And um, when Jeff and I were kind of talking about what uh, I should speak about, I asked him if he had a passage in mind, and he just said, well, why don't you just talk about uh, maybe something that's been meaningful to you or maybe something that you've been studying. And so I thought about it for a brief second, and I thought, well, the Jets are eliminated from the playoffs, so I'm going to preach on the Psalms of Lament. Okay, maybe not. We'll leave that one for another time. But I have been spending a lot of time uh, in the Gospel of John. I'm in a course right now and just diving in to this Gospel deeper and deeper. And I've been learning a lot and I've been realizing that I'm connecting uh, with this Gospel on a personal level. And uh, so that's what we're going to dive into a little bit today. Uh, one of the things that um, really stood out to me as I've been studying through this Gospel of John are all the different ways that Jesus is portrayed as. He, um, John portrays him in rich imagery in different ways. And he says he is the word made flesh. He is the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life. And he is the true vine. And he's all of these things. And depending on what season of life you're going through, you might relate better to one of these images or another. And as I reflected on my own life and which image I relate to currently, or at least in the last, I would say, year or so, it's this image of Jesus as the good shepherd. And now what do shepherds do? They provide security, they provide provision, and they provide care for their flock. And I think Another way of reframing those, those core things that a shepherd provides are also, are also core desires that we have. If you read uh, the, the famous tagline in the American uh, Declaration of Independence, it states that everyone has the right to life and liberty and pursuit of happiness. And I think these desires, they resonate with us. And we want life. We want it to be a life that is lived to its fullest measure. We want to experience freedom, and of course we want happiness. And we want financial security, we want community, we want to be taken care of. And as most of you know, about seven months ago, uh, my wife, Karis, and I and I made a really major life transition. And uh, we left our rooted life and left our careers and our community. And we moved three provinces west to beautiful BC. And I was, as I was reflecting on both the joys and the excitement of this transition, but also on the challenges and the, the unknowns, I related to God as, as my shepherd. I, I realized that these questions of security, provision, and care, of, of life, of uh, happiness, all of these questions suddenly were up in the air, right? Like, are we going to find community here? Are we going to have the life that we're hoping for? Um, is this financially secure and wise to leave a career to be a youth pastor, that's a whole other dis discussion, but these questions started popping up and I realized that my prayers to God related to God as a shepherd. I was looking for his guidance. I was looking for him to provide. I was trusting that he was leading to good pastors. And with that, I want to turn to John chapter 10 uh, this morning. And we're going to be focusing on the first 21 verses. If you want to open your Bibles to that passage or read, read along on the screen, 
Jesus says this, and he's addressing the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the time. He says, very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger and in fact they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And Jesus used this figure of speech but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And the Jews who heard these words were divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? To give us a little bit of context around this passage, uh, there's a few things that we need to note. And first is the author's purpose of writing his gospel, the whole goal that, he's, uh, that he has in mind as he writes this gospel. It's woven throughout the whole gospel. You can pick up on the thread on chapter one, but it's, it's very clearly stated uh, at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His whole purpose is to convince his audience, a very Jewish audience, that Jesus is the Messiah, so that they might believe and receive life. Secondly, it's important for us to know what happens right before these parables about sheep and shepherds. And in chapter nine, um, Jesus heals a blind man. And he does this on a Sabbath, which obviously does not make the Jewish leaders very happy. The Jewish leaders in the synagogue, they question the man who had been blind. Who healed you? What is his name? Who do you say he is? How did he do it? And the man who had been blind says that this Jesus must be a man from God. How can he be a, a sinner? How can he be demon-possessed? And he says he's a prophet. But the Jewish leaders, they're divided among themselves and they ultimately reject this man's testimony. They reject the notion that Jesus is the Messiah and they excommunicate the man from the synagogue. And what is very interesting is 
how bold this man is in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He was a beggar. He relied heavily on the provision and the security and the care of the synagogue community. Belonging and being accepted into the synagogue community was much more than just about coming to church on a Sunday morning. Belonging to a synagogue community had to do with a person's livelihood in society. It had to do with status, with, with whether or not they would be accepted, with whether or not people would do business with you, whether or not people would even talk to you. To be excommunicated would be devastating, especially for somebody with, um, with a low standing as this beggar who was blind. But this is the risk that this man takes by acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. And they end up throwing him out. He's cut off from benefiting from this synagogue community. But what happens next is beautiful. As soon as Jesus hears what had happened to this man, he looks for the man like a shepherd looks for his lost sheep. And he reveals himself to him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, tell me who he is that I might believe. And the man worships him. And there's irony in what happens in this text. The man who had been blind sees physically, but he also sees spiritually. He recognizes the good shepherd. He recognizes Jesus. And he worships him. But the Jewish leaders, who could see physically and claim to know the scriptures in and out, they knew the whole Torah, the first five books of Moses by memory. They claimed to know all the scriptures and the prophets, and yet they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see how their very own scriptures pointed to this Jesus that they were rejecting. They know the scriptures, but in Greek there's two senses of the word know, of knowledge. And the first one is the word oida. They knew the scriptures in this sense. They possessed information of the scriptures, but they did not know, ginosko know, who these scriptures pointed to. They'd had no experiential, relational, intimate knowledge of the God that their own scriptures pointed to. Now, with this in mind, we move into chapter 10, and it looks like it's a little disconnected because right from this, Jesus goes into talking about sheep and shepherds. And so what's the connection to chapter 9? Well, the imagery about shepherds is rich throughout the whole Old Testament. Whenever there are, there's scripture that talks about shepherds, it usually, most often, points to a picture about leadership, about God, about kings. And it has a rich connection to talking about, um, about leadership in general, which is what these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they had just neglected their role, right? So that's the connection. In chapter 9, the big questions that dominate the whole chapter are, is he the Messiah? Is he the leader that we've been hoping for? And Jesus addresses these questions in chapter 10 with shepherding imagery. And he begins with a short parable about shepherds and under-shepherds. And in most translations, the word under-shepherd is translated as gatekeeper, but it's the same thing. A hired shepherd that is not really the shepherd, but he takes care of, of the sheep while the real shepherd is gone. And so Jesus starts with this parable. He says, very truly I tell you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper, or the under shepherd, opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. 
He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. The one who enters by the sheep gate is the true shepherd, and the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. In those days, um, it was common for multiple neighbors to share a sheep pen Uh, So you'd have a village and you'd have maybe three or four or five neighbors that would share one sheep pen. It was like a courtyard where these neighbors shared that space. And they would hire an under-shepherd, maybe one of their own kids or maybe a hired person, but they would hire somebody to watch over these flocks at night when the shepherds were either gone or they were sleeping. And their job was simply to watch over the true shepherd's flock. And in the morning when the true shepherd would come to lead them out to pasture, the gatekeeper's job was simply to recognize, oh, I recognize you. These are your sheep. I grant you access to your sheep. And Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees. He's kind of vaguely saying, you guys are those under shepherds. You guys are the gatekeepers. But you did not recognize me, nor did you take care of the flock that I entrusted you with but they don't get what Jesus is saying. So he paints another shepherding scenario. This first scenario is painted in the village in that courtyard that's shared by neighbors and they have a gatekeeper. And this next scenario, Jesus paints out in the pasture, out in the wilderness. And in the summer, it was common for shepherds to lead their flocks out to pastures and they would frequently camp out with their sheep overnight. They would probably have to go large distances sometimes to find pasture. They would have to go through deserty areas and dry areas and desolate areas to find green pastures. And so instead of coming home every night, they would simply camp out. And out in the pastures, you would see places like this. They were enclosures usually carved out of the natural rock and caves that were there, and then the shepherds would stack a few rocks together to make an enclosure. But they didn't have their under-shepherd with them, and they didn't have a proper gate So when they were out in the pastures, it was the shepherd himself who was the gate. He would lie down in that opening and anything, literally anything coming in and out of there would have to get through the shepherd. And this is the the imagery that Jesus uses for this next example. Pharisees didn't get it, so he says again, therefore, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus himself is the gate and whoever goes in to the sheepfold through him will be safe, will have freedom to go in and out, will have life and have it to the full. Everyone that came before Jesus, Jesus calls thieves and robbers. And here Jesus is not calling Moses or David or the faithful prophets that went before him. He's not calling them thieves or robbers. But those who posed as messiahs or or as neglectful shepherds. Like the Pharisees who acted as shepherds but were really thieves. And you would have, I think Jeff mentioned this in his sermon last week, you would have these messiahs pop up, these 
these people rise up and claim to be a Messiah. Because in those days, the Jewish people were long waiting for a Messiah. About 600 years before this, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians, and their temple was destroyed. And in their temple was the Ark of the Covenant. Their scriptures were kept there. Their social life, their religious and political life, everything that they stood for was destroyed and taken from them. And eventually they would come out of exile, but never fully. They were always under oppression by some other regime. First it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, and most recently it was the Romans that had their heavy boot on them. The time was ripe for a Messiah. When would he come? Who would he be? What would he look like? And so leaders would rise up from time and time and they would claim to be the Messiah or at least give some kind of messianic hope. You would have rebels that would gather a few followers around them and they would want to overthrow the oppression. But they ended up being temporary heroes at best or at worst frauds or failures that ended up on the Roman cross. King Herod was another example. He seemed to show some kind of a hope of a messianic figure. He rebuilt the temple. But Herod could care less for the sheep of Israel. He was Rome's puppet. He was their yes man. And he was only in the leadership role for his own benefit. He sat in his palace, enjoyed his luxury. Meanwhile, his people remained in oppression. Jesus was referring to these types of false messianic figures who were in reality just thieves and robbers. They only came to steal and kill and destroy, or at best, they overpromised and underdelivered. So, who is the real Messiah? What will he look like? And how will we know when he's here? And Jesus is saying, This is how you will know. The real shepherd, the real Messiah, won't come to kill and steal and destroy. He will come that his sheep may have life and have it to its fullest measure. He's not in it for himself. And Jesus is saying this, and he's not just making up fluff that sounds good. The words he's saying are strong echoes that the Jewish leaders would have referenced to Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God is portrayed as the ultimate good shepherd, while Israel's leaders are painted as bad shepherds who have neglected their roles entrusted to them. So let's look at a few sections of Ezekiel 34 to make that connection. This is, this is what the Jewish leaders would be hearing. They would hear this echo. This is from Ezekiel 34, and it says, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And we skip ahead a few verses and God is proclaiming, I myself will search for the sheep and look after them. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring the strayed back and I will bind up their their injuries and I will strengthen the weak. And here's a little confusing ending to Ezekiel 34 and this has been confusing the Jewish scholars up until this point. 
And it's this closing verse in Ezekiel 31st. He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Is God the true shepherd or is it somebody from David's line that's gonna be the true shepherd? The Jewish leaders are hearing this echoed in what Jesus is saying and they're all wondering, wait a minute, are, are we those bad shepherds that he's referring to? And is he actually claiming to be the good shepherd? Because that would be blasphemy. And as they're sitting at the edge of their seats, Jesus comes with the punchline next and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is foreshadowing the death on the cross that awaits him. He's not in it for himself. He is in it that his sheep may have life and have it to the full, both here and now and in eternity, even if that life costs him his own. And Jesus is not just rhetorically saying, well, a good shepherd might lay down his life for his sheep. He is quite literally pointing forward, I will lay down my life for my sheep. And again, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The word Jesus uses here for knowing the sheep, again, is not just knowing about, it's not just information of, it's not oidos. Jesus is using the word ginosko. He knows his sheep and his sheep ginosko know him. They have an intimate, experiential, relational knowledge of this God, of this shepherd. And I love the next part. He says, this is the same kind of knowledge that I have with my father and the father has with me. That's the same kind of intimate, relational knowledge Jesus has with his sheep. If you notice, the ending of Ezekiel 34 is confusing. I just pointed it out. On the one part, God says he's going to be the good shepherd who will come and save his sheep. And on the other end, he says, David, somebody from David's line is going to come and save his sheep. So which is it? And we can easily miss the power and significance of what Jesus is saying in this claim. And to get a better appreciation of what Jesus is getting at, of this massive punchline that he just delivered, we got to go back all the way to Exodus when Moses encounters God in the burning bush and God calls him to lead out his people and Moses said, who are you? What shall I tell the people is your name? And God says, I am. Jesus' words in John 10 are, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Jesus is both the good shepherd as God and he is the Davidic Messiah. He makes sense of Ezekiel 34. He fulfills it. And this passage is often used um, to remind pastors and leaders and teachers of the roles that, um, that they are entrusted with as under-shepherds, as gatekeepers, to be faithful in their temporal leadership roles. And that's a great application. But I think this passage goes much beyond just a passage for teachers and leaders. This passage is for all of us. In verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. We are those other sheep. The Gentiles are those other sheep. 
And Jesus, I love this, he says, I must bring them also. They also belong to me. And as we think about sheep, I think we like to give them a bad rap. Sheep are pretty dumb. That's usually the first thing that people think of. Sheep are dumb. But they are incredibly good at voice recognition. That is one of their best skills, is voice recognition. N.T. Wright, a biblical scholar, um, he writes in one of his commentaries that he actually went to Israel and he observed how a shepherd works. And the shepherds in Israel still work the same way that this passage describes. Western shepherds, they will drive their flocks from behind, usually with a dog or some kind of help, but they drive their, sh- their flock from behind. The Eastern shepherds, they know their sheep by name still to this day, and they call them with a series of whistles and clicks and some of them by name, and the sheep follow them. The shepherd goes on ahead of them. And N.T. Wright saw this, and they follow the shepherd's voice. And every now and then, he said, the sheep will will get distracted by something that's off to the side or maybe get scared by something and they forget to look at their shepherd and they stray a little bit. But then the shepherd will whistle again or call the name and they look up and they run back to him. They know, Ginosko know the shepherd's voice. They trust he will lead them to water and pasture. They know that if they want to experience life to the fullest measure that a sheep can have, they are best off listening to this familiar voice. As I think about my life, our life, there's so many voices that are in our life that are competing for our allegiance, competing for our attention. And so many of them promise this full life, right? Um, Back in college, I took business classes and marketing tactics use this all the time, right? You look at an ad or a billboard, and they'll portray a good-looking person or a really happy-looking family or healthy, happy retirees on the golf course. And they're selling you a product, but they're not actually interested in selling you their product. They want to sell you what you most desire, security, care, provision, happiness. And so they use this to sell you whatever gimmick they're trying to sell you. And we need not all of these things that the world offers, not all of them are bad, some of them are necessary. We do need jobs, we do need education, we do need having a good career is good. We should be thinking wisely about our finances, of what we should do with them as we grow older, as we have kids. But in and of of themselves, these voices tend to overpromise and underdeliver. So don't hear me wrong, meaningful work and education and some of these necessary things that we need, they're not all bad. They may actually be a green pasture that God has led you to. Be grateful for that. But don't misunderstand the pasture for the shepherd. And then there are other voices that we hear in our life that call for our allegiance and they are inherently bad. They are these robbers, these thieves. They only come to steal and kill and destroy false spirituality, right? In Nelson, I see these tarot card readings, um, crystals, New Age spiritualism is so prominent and they promise this life that people crave. They all want to make you believe that they offer parts of the life you are craving, but they end up robbing you. Our vices, right? Substance abuse, pornography, a love of money. These things 
They say they're going to give you what you're most desiring, but they actually rob you of that very thing. And then there's the ugly thief and the robber of illness and sickness and death. And like sheep, we too can get distracted by all these different voices. We too need a reminder from the Good Shepherd when he calls our name. We too need a reminder from this shepherd who Ginosko knows you and Ginosko knows me. And he wants to give us the life to its fullest measure. He knows your pain and he knows your vices, your illnesses. Our vices, our illnesses. The false messiahs that we sometimes give ear to. But Jesus calls you back by name. He says those things won't give you what you desire, but I will. He has laid down his life to prove that. He's not in it for himself. And we are all in different seasons of our life. Maybe you're safely resting in the sheepfold and life is good. Be grateful for that. Maybe you're in a pasture and there is provision and there is health and there is security right now. Be grateful for that. But maybe you've been let out of the pen. Maybe you are currently walking through the wilderness, through this desert, You see the wolves in the distance. You don't see the pasture. You don't see the life that the shepherd is promising. But don't be discouraged. Don't let your hope fade. Jesus knows you by name, and he's walking ahead of you. And you can be sure that he is ultimately leading you to good pastures. Amen.